Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books Network. I'm Diadip Salonkomer, the host of this channel, and today I'm here with Dr. Gabriel Levi to talk about his book, Beyond Heaven and Earth, A Cognitive Theory of Religion. Now, this book has been a fascinating book for me and also something which caught my attention because of uh, cognitive theory and also and you know, how the book has been constructed by using works by Donald uh, Davidson. So I'm sure that uh, as we explore this uh, work and as we explore this book, uh, we will all be enriched by this wonderful work that Dr. Gabriel Levi has done. So let me straight away go into to the author himself and ask um, Dr. Levi, tell me something about yourself. Okay, uh, thanks for having me here, Tia. Uh, I'm happy to be here to talk to you about this and have a conversation. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, in terms of my background, I um, got a bachelor's degree in anthropology and religion from Dartmouth College in, in the States. And uh, there were some really amazing people um, working there in both those disciplines, um, really great teachers that I had there. And basically that kind of set my standpoint up for my future work. I, I, I consider myself an anthropologist of religion, basically. Um, but it's channeled through this Davidsonian approach that I'm sure we'll get to. Um, and then in grad school, I moved to California and took a PhD up at uh, University of California, Santa Barbara. And I also did uh, some years work at uh, Berkeley, which is the same uh, system, because that's where Davidson uh, was teaching at the time, towards the end of his career. I mean, he taught there his whole life, but he was uh, basically emeritus at that point. And uh, I started in 1999 in grad school, and that was basically the tail end of uh, critical theory and the influences of the great French post-structuralist uh, tradition. Not that that's finished, you know, at this point, but uh, an alternative was kind of creeping up in those years, and that was this cognitive approach, basically. And I was sympathetic to both uh, traditions, if you want to call it that. And that was due to this basically Davidsonian monistic approach that uh, di doesn't discount the material level. Um, so I was, it caught my, my attention, this cognitive approach. And, and I, moved to Denmark um, towards the end of writing my dissertation, which was on uh, biblical prophecy. And I got involved there with a lot of the first generation people working in the cognitive science of religion, uh, this like kind of subfield. Um, I guess it's, yeah, it, it's kind of a interdisciplinary subfield, this cognitive science of religion. But a lot of the at the time, Denmark and especially Aarhus, were, which is a city in uh, Jutland, of the, the continental part of Denmark, um, uh, a lot of people there were, that, that was kind of a hot spot for this uh, at the time for the Kagsai of religion, and it actually still is. Um, so the dissertation ended up being like basically a cognitive theory of biblical prophecy, if you want to call it that. Um, I was really interested in um, basically the debates around orality versus literacy, mostly coming out of anthropology. Um, 
So like the consequences of literacy basically as a technology. And I wanted to see how the, a cognitive approach would uh, intervene on that or what it could do for that debate. So it was basically about a question about media and how this affects religion. And uh, I was interested in how information, for lack of a better word, information uh, gets channeled uh, in religion. So I, it went from a kind of broad uh, use of images in religions, if you want to talk about the history of religions, to an explicit ban on uh, representations in Judaism. Uh, so my the first book kind of goes off from there, and it and it, it it takes up these same questions, but applies it kind of to the whole Jewish tradition. So not just biblical prophecy, but the rabbinic tradition, and and further on. But anyway, so then uh, after that, after about seven or eight years. Uh, in Denmark, I got the permanent job in Norway, uh, here in Trondheim, Norway, at, at NTNU, the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. Uh, thank you very much. I think in your explanation, you have also talked about how you, you might you have come about uh, to this very book. So I think uh, that was also kind of fascinating to hear your intellectual journey in that sense. So that was quite interesting. So. Let's straight away go into the book itself and the discussion there. And uh, that is where, first of all, um, I would like to ask about um, your use of Donald Davidson's uh, anomalous monism. Now, I think initially you talk about this very aspect of metaphysics, why uh, metaphysics matters, then you discuss Donald Davidson's work. So can you elaborate more on this aspect? Yeah, sure. So basically... Um... The, the part that's nice about Davidson, uh, basically, <clears throat> that comes out of this anomalous monistic approach, um, which has a lot of details to it that maybe we won't get into, but one of the core parts of it is that the, it prioritizes the intersubjective level as a point of departure, basically, for making sense of human meaning, for lack of a better word, or um, semantics, as, as Davidson calls it. So it prioritizes this level of intersubjectivity. Um, and that's, that's kind of the, the focus, or that's kind of the frame that Davidson gives for looking, for applying it to religion. Um, basically, it leads to... Uh, in the book, I, I say it's similar to what people are today calling like a flat ontology uh, in the sense of um, that um, you kind of have to um, have a very kind of wide uh, view on what you accept as ontological reality. Um, I, I'm more inclined to go with the Quine, uh, one of... Uh, Davidson's uh, mentors uh, was this guy, Willard Quine, and he, he called this ontological swelling, basically, when he, when he talked about it. Um, it. And that's because from an intersubjective perspective, you, you really don't prioritize either uh, the material or the mental. It, you, you have to find some way of... of, uh, of coming at these things uh, without prioritizing one or the other, or thinking one comes first or the other comes first. And uh, yeah, so Davidson gives us a really nice uh, way to do that, um, especially his notion of triangulation, as it's called. That's kind of the main metaphor of inner subjectivity in, in Davidson's work. But what Davidson doesn't do is he doesn't see the, the hard part here is if you are trying to stay at the inner subjective level, it's this basically is holistic level. What, what people call the like global supervenience of the mental level um, 
it it makes it hard to explain how you how a human mind could enter that level like this the intermediary points between the physical and the mental uh, basically davidson said those th- that couldn't be we didn't have a vocabulary for for connecting those two kind of metaphysical vocabularies um and what that means is basically he made no attempt and basically no one in this davidsonian tradition in in the study of religion does it of trying to account historically or even evolutionarily how you can go from one from basically a, a creature that doesn't you could say have language or doesn't have semantics to a creature that does. So part of what I'm doing in the book is trying to give as best I can an evolutionary uh, story, an evolutionary account of that, uh, which is maybe it's impossible. I mean, a lot of people would say you can't, it's not really possible, but I mean, I think you can, you can improve the vocabulary in kind of trying to connect the dots uh, and a lot of in the book, I make the case that this form of cognition, cognitive science, inactive cognition, it's called the uh, inactive approach, uh, gives a lot of nice uh, uh, terms and nice theories for trying to connect those dots. That's uh, that's true. I mean, anonymous monism, in a sense, uh, um, is a philosophy of theorism in a sense where one doesn't collapse to the uh, other, and I think. You are kind of you have kind of expand, expounded it in um, proper way, and also at the same time your project is kind of clear in the book itself. So uh, you talk about this uh, triangulation, where Davison talk about this one. So what what is this idea of triangulation? How does it work? So yeah, triangulation is um, basically it's a metaphor to describe how there can be content. How can there there can be semantic content um, uh, without basically intermediaries, without representations? Um, and uh, I like the way uh, uh, that um, uh, one of the great interpreters, uh, students of uh, of um, Davidson, puts it that. Uh, Triangulation is a form of holistic externalist relationism, and basically the the idea is, um, in order for, uh, you you could say, meaning is created through an interaction between at least two people and the world they share, and the the meaning of any any communication between human beings is not in any one of those nodes of the triangle. That it's really a truly kind of interactivist picture of the way that meaning emerges in communication. Um, So uh, you can think of it as, uh, well, the classic example that that people often give is from, uh, it's... um, it, it connects to Davidson's uh, notion of radical interpretation. Um, and he basically borrowed that for also from Quine. But this famous example of Gava guy, I don't know if you've heard of it before. Any philosopher, analytic philosopher listening will have heard this many times. But um, so like if you are suddenly in some very strange place that you've never been before, and you meet another person, and uh, a rabbit runs by, and the per- the person says "gaffa guy" to you. The way that you come to understand what that phrase actually means it is going to be some combination, some triangular uh, interaction going forward through time. Basically, you're going to try to triangulate. Uh, with that that person, and the more you triangulate between you and this other person, and that what you call a rabbit, 
the closer or you're going to get probably to some uh, form of understanding. Um, so it, it's basically a way to try to um, explain uh, the content of language without recourse to like in a kind of um, pragmatist mode, you could call it as a form of pragmatism. And, and and without recourse to representations, that it's really through a kind of coordination and intercoordination with other people that we arrive at meaning um, as human beings. Yeah, yeah I think that uh, concept, um, the clarification of the concept was uh, quite important because as we are going to explore uh, the chapters now, it will come into really handy when the listeners uh, go into the chapters and when we uh, talk about the chapters. So, uh, first of all, you talk about this uh, semantics of religion, or the very essence and what religion is about, and you talk about, uh, I mean, you call it as a form of uh, genealogy of religion. So, how, how do you understand the semantics of religion from the Davidsonian perspective? Yeah. I basically make the case that what we call religion is a, a kind of fallout of our meaning and sense-making practices more generally. And um, that, that basically, once you get to the level, to this level, holistic level of the mental, that that's when religion emerges as well. Um, so part of the, this process of triangulating uh, for Davidson involves um, basically trying to match up truths and falsities uh, with the, the other person in the triangular interaction. And this isn't like truth and falsity in like the big T sense of like ultimate truth or something. It's more like um, basically in, in this conversation you, Tia, and I are having as in order to understand me, you're basically constantly tracking your own kind of truth, false metric, uh, and mine, and trying to kind of bring them together. Basically, you, in other words, you don't know what I mean until you know whether you think it's true or false, would be maybe one very sim simplistic way to put it. Uh, and I'm basically in the book, I'm trying to focus in on the falsity part of that, because that's that's the interesting part when it comes to religion. It's the classic idea, like everyone else's religion is false, you know, except mine. There, there's something about religion that like hinges, that like turns on this falsity issue. And I try to do a kind of natural uh, history. You could call it genealogy as well, I think, of falsity and misinformation and, uh, and uh, try to connect religion to it in that way, basically saying that religion is a form of, well, fictionalizing that the types of agents that we um, interact with uh, in fictional, in religious narratives are fictional. So like religion is a subclass of fiction, but at the same time, fictional agents are, are potentially real in the sense, in this pragmatic sense that we've been getting at from this intersubjective level. You can say that these fictional agents are real. And th that opens the potential for them to be used in religions. So basically, uh, religion is a fallout of this, uh, of our ability to make sense of things around us. Um, and we will never get beyond that because in order to think, we need these fictions and we need falsities. Just in order to think, uh, we need these uh, to be there. Um, so there's a lot more to it than that, but uh, as you know in the book, but that's the basic idea. 
Yeah, and you explore deeply into this aspect of uh, fiction and their um, uh, religious agents. So, uh, how does this fiction, in that sense, relate to reality? In that sense, obviously, in anthropology, we have this notion that you know this ontological turn has come up with this notion of trying to understand reality. So, how does this fictional narrative that the religion creates relate to this reality? So, the case I'm making in the book is that the mental is as real as the physical from this holistic perspective you know also going back all the way to quine you can't you don't get to just you can't just pick individual sentences out of anyone's like entire kind of you could call it the like array of uh, beliefs if we want to call it that you, you can't just you, you can't kind of just pick one and isolate that and, and say, well, this, this part of it isn't real. Like any, any kind of any statement that someone makes has to be looked at in the context of the, their, basically their entire, um, all the things they ever would say. Um, but of course, so the way, um, uh, Mark Garner, who's a philosopher of religion, scholar of religion, calls it is uh, someone's uh, like basically in order to make sense of someone, you have to observe their total behavior. But we since we don't have access to someone's total behavior ever, it, this is always kind of pushed down the road. Um, but uh, so what what is real is real in this pragmatic sense of uh, what, what is going to, I guess, work, for lack of a better word, uh, in the long run for this person. Um, so uh, I guess I'm saying um, fictional, fictional things are real in, in many cases to people. Um, and uh, and um, that's not where our kind of uh, real, unreal, uh, that, that type of discourse, that, that's not where that belongs. It doesn't belong to, the, to that kind of uh, level. Um, so something, the example in the book, you know, that I'm kind of thinking about is like uh, um, someone like Mickey Mouse or, you know, the certain pop, popular cultural, fictional agents. And uh, I don't see any reason why we can't consider those things real. Uh, and then the next question is, how do those things, how do those characters connect to religious characters? And uh, But cognitively and semantically, in terms of the sense-making of these uh, agents, they're they're just as real as any other type of agent, I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you for that. Yeah, and you also talk about where you say that uh, the distinction between fantasy and reality is something which is not in porn. Now, I want you to elaborate more on that. How how does this distinction happen in a person in a community? Then, if it is not in porn, in a sense. Yeah. So I guess I talk about that most in this chapter on. Uh on celebrity, the cult of celebrity, uh, chapter five, I think. Um, but, um, I think, uh, mostly we're taught to make that distinction that mostly we, um, we learn these things from our parents and peers, uh, to make those distinctions between fantasy and reality. Um, and uh, that there's actually, that's not to say everything is cultural, because I think there is a kind of very immense kind of bedrock of shared, uh, we could call them universals, maybe, that human beings share uh, across our entire species, Uh so and but there so there there are minimal kind of la layer of things that we're born with, um, like uh, here I'm just thinking of Cecilia Hayes's 
book, uh, Cognitive Gadgets, which I really like, which she kind of makes that point where she she's doing something similar, trying to say that there's this kind of, uh, there there are some things that we're born with, but for the most part, we acquire them through, we acquire kind of cultural gadgets over the course of our lifetime. And basically this, I would put this distinction uh, between fantasy and reality into that category, that it's something we are trained to uh, to do by, by the culture that we're born in. Um, and, uh, and uh, I think um, there's, there's been a tendency like in, uh, or, um, you know, because I guess, uh, you know, anthropology and the study of religion originated mostly in Europe to kind of go out into the world and, uh, you know, uh, kind of think of our own uh, fantasy reality uh, distinction as the natural one and not, and kind of uh, not recognize that it could be shaped in different ways in other cultures. On chapter three, you talk about information. Uh, now, um... I wanted you to elaborate more on this one where, you know, in terms of the uh, animalist monism, taking Davidson's point and, you know, in terms of how you understand evolutionary, how information gets generated and used. So uh, can you elaborate more on this aspect? Yeah, that's a, really, that's the toughest, uh, strangest chapter. I mean, I know it's a strange book all around, but that, that, that was... <laughs> particularly difficult one because that's the one where I'm trying to do that thing that we started the, the talk with, which is try to make these kind of, uh, in a sense, paradoxical bridges between what, what I'm calling like natural information and the semantic level of information, if you want to call it that. I mean, uh, I have a close academic friend who's very suspicious of this idea of information. And uh, I think it's uh, for, I am too, um, but I just don't really see a way around it because I'm trying to tell this um, natural evolutionary story about how we got to this semantic level, which doesn't, isn't about information. This is about sense-making and meaning. Uh, and uh, that's different than just information, like input, output, representations. Um, so, uh, but, but we had to get there somehow. And if you look at, for example, other animals, it's hard not to describe their communication systems using this concept of information. So I basically, I tried to describe how basically the natural history of information. Um, and it had, it had to emerge at the same time, basically, as life itself, as far as I can see. Um, I mean, uh, you could say information was radically reorganized when you had the first organisms on the planet. Um, I mean, DNA, for example, is a type of information, for lack of a better word. Um, so information goes all the way back to that point. And I'm trying to trace it up as far close as we can get to semantic, this global supervenience level of semantics um, that can't, can't be reduced to uh, the physical. And it can't be reduced to just information that there's more to it than that because it involves this layer of triangulation but but what are the pieces what are the pieces that uh that are gonna go into it uh th that go into that uh um that robust notion of triangulation um that's kind of what that that chapter is trying to do um and um the idea is basically for for this idea of an intersubjective level of human 
language to work um in a sense for human beings to get there it already had to be there before in some sense which which is what makes this argument sound really trippy and weird and almost theological you can avoid those things uh one way around it is the way i'm i'm going just to say that there was a kind of um, holistic structure already set in place that human beings entered uh, other scholars have made this point like terence deacon and uh um about language and turner uh about uh, he he argued that the narratives have that function or stories but that that kind of uh is what um kind of uh, is the platform that human beings could enter uh to get to this level of semantics um but uh again there's a good case to be made that we actually don't have the right bridging type of language to make these leaps um i like as i said the the um an active approach uh to this question and also to information because it it makes this mind life uh continuity principle as it's called which basically says that uh as i read it they might read it differently that if you're going to explain basically life itself the origins of life that already requires a certain metaphysic metaphysical uh apparatus like they have ideas like uh autopoiesis and uh operational closure and needful freedom um these are so like uh, that uh to account for life you're going to need these kind of overarching principles that are already there and um something like that is going to also be part of the explanation for how we enter into this uh, intersubjective level to to keep it short yes um yeah in chapter 4 you talk about uh, language and thought now our language have to you know uh, represent something and our thought have to signify certain aspect of the reality in that sense and you you talk about this uh, where language as an uh, improvised triangular interaction now i think in in terms of uh, how uh, language and thought works and how it is understood in the davisonian perspective and how you explore can you expand more on this very aspect of a language and thought in that sense yeah so that's uh, that chapter it starts with this uh, really interesting uh experiment that uh, Stanislav Dehain and his colleagues did and he's basically the world expert on uh the neuroscience of uh, literacy um and he's also interested in mathematics uh, the neuroscience of mathematics um and um it turns out that uh, basically learning how to do math the way we do it here in the west uh or probably now throughout the world but uh but uh this uh mathematical uh the the mathematical theories that we use in the west that uh, it actually changes how we conceive of numbers um it 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 uh, it shapes how we understand how numbers relate to one another um the 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 reason that's in there is because the, that chapter i'm trying to make the case that um it, our education systems are what uh really shape our minds uh and they have these radical uh consequences in terms of how they shape our minds that it can be so fundamental that it it changes the way that we think of that numbers relate to one another um and the idea is like math mathematical concepts this also goes back to quine as well are just like all those other concepts like uh they're also uh no more real or less real than uh 
as Quine says, the gods of Homer. They're like these theoretical posits. Um, so they also um, they also kind of belong to this like inner subjective level that we're talking about, um, and um, and uh, that that's um, that that's what I that from there I I tried to. I think this is kind of what this uh, ancient medieval text that I look at in that chapter is uh, after, basically, this text called the Sefer Yitzirah, that uh, that this is the kind of, uh, th this is what they're tripping out on in that text, is uh, the relation between basically these relatively recently discovered uh, mathematical tools, uh, their own minds, and the cosmos, basically. The, these three, the, the relation between these three things is what they're tripping out on to a very large extent. To make it more concrete in that sense, I, I, I wanted to expand it in the sense of this one, where it's like the the way we describe nature from, let's say, the from the physical point of view, say, uh, for example, some people say that, you know, the nature is written down in the language of mathematics, something like that, right? But then again, the way we as human people describe nature is in a, is in a very, in a, in a social manner, it's very different in a way of how, how we describe it. So how, how does this two come together in the sense of the physical description and the mental description of the natural world or the nature? How, how does these two interact? Yeah, uh, I see. I see what you mean. Yeah, so um, I I guess what that chapter is is it's kind of trying to enter that um, that paradox that I that the third chapter is kind of setting up um, between these two different levels of natural information and semantic holism. Um, but, and just based on what you said, it's nice to get that feedback from you. Uh, and uh, so um, it is making a kind of case for some kind of uh, neutral space, if you want to call Davidson's form of monism neutral monism, like James or, you know, anomalous monism, but some, some, I guess third space, or maybe there's more than three, but some some something that's not neither uh, mental nor physical, um, and I agree. So that's kind of the idea of anomalous monism, just to put it out there that there are these two vocabularies, irreducible, irreconcilable vocabularies for describing. Uh, I don't know, nature or the universe or however you want to put it. There's the, this physical, anomalous vocabulary, which math is uh, often very good at describing, although there are also very weird types of math that exist. And the uh, mental, which is uh, the... Um, we w When we want to basically try to understand other people, other persons, we need to attribute mental states to them. And uh, there's no, that there's, uh, there's no bridging between those two uh, domains is basically the point of anomalous monism. And uh, so I, that, that's, um, that chapter is, uh, it's a experimental in the sense of it's trying to do both at the same time without kind of reducing them to each other. So it's kind of a, a pilot study or like a experimental projection of the theory into some religious text, into interpreting some religious text. Yeah, um, that, that's, that's quite interesting. And I think your description now, I mean, your analysis make it more clear in that sense. Uh, so now... If, I mean, tripling down to from your theoretical discussion to the point where you talk about, you know, the media and how today's celebrities has become the new superhero agents. Uh, now, uh, how does it work? The How does the agent of media work? And, you know, how does celebrity become the new superhero agent? 
Yeah. So yeah, these three la the three final chapters are are meant to be a kind of application of the theory, um, and it's trying to draw some strings back to the chapter on fiction, um, and uh, basically uh, make the case that um, modern forms of media, I'm sure I'm not the only one to say this, but have been very good at something very specific and that in terms of the context of the book, and that is manipulating light. Um, and there I'm, I'm talking literally about light because that that's very much what all these, uh, I don't know, visual regimes uh, that we have, uh, that we're very focused on. This was a trend that kind of started you know, already with literacy, that's kind of one of the points uh, of the of the first book that I wrote. So like uh, you could say literate that letters, the lit literal word is is one way to manipulate light. Uh, there's a famous uh, like uh, Talmudic or Midrashic idea that the Torah is like black fire on white fire. Um, and um, that's so uh, a letter is a manipulation of light uh, between, you know, contrasts of light and dark, obviously. And um, this is just kind of expanding that or it's kind of like we, we seem we seem to be moving out of that kind of if there was a kind of dominance of literacy or the literal word like with. Protestantism, there's been an argument about that. We seem to be moving out of that now. Things have kind of exploded, and uh, the 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 new technology seems to be just an um, insanely powerful way to manipulate light. So there's a lot of kind of playing on with the light metaphors, if we want to call it that. So like the idea that uh, that uh, the night sky was basically our the our original extended cognition, if you want to put things that way. Like I, I find it hard to believe that uh, hominids and our other ancestors spell, spending millions of years staring up at a night sky that isn't doesn't have a lot of light pollution, that they wouldn't. Uh, utilize the patterns that are there and aren't there to um, to coordinate their lives, to tell stories and those types of things. So I'm playing on that idea and also on the idea of just celebrities as stars, is, you know, the, the obvious one, divinities as related to stars and light. So I'm kind of making it's a case about media uh, and um, and a kind of rechanneling of information into the this this kind of configuration of the cult of celebrity. Yeah, it's interesting how how you have related the media to the very uh, idea and construction of the divinities in that sense. I mean, uh, a very interesting chapter in that sense. So coming to the last chapter, and I think since our time is also running up, let this be the last question in that sense. And you talk about, here you talk about intimacy, intersubjectivity and intimacy. And I think information is not just information, but also also inter information is not just, you know, used in the, in the subjectivity, but then you also talk about intimacy in that sense. So how, how does intimacy comes into the picture in terms of the, uh, you know, the uh, this is that you're talking about yeah yeah so this is um i think also a kind of uh risky like chapter um i'm basically i'm it's partly like being critical of davidson uh because i mean i i'm obviously i kind of want to say davidson is right about everything but but i guess he's not and i guess there are some things left out and one of them is um that really, I mean, uh, there's more to like triangulation than just, uh, 
kind of uh, attribution of like mental states, like uh, propositional attitudes, like, uh, I don't know, beliefs and uh, wishes and, uh, and such. Um, so I, I kind of, uh, I play on the fact that Davidson, uh, his, that his third wife, um, Marcia Cavell, who was this brilliant scholar in, of psychoanalysis, the kind of mutual influence that they had on each other's intellectual lives. Um, and uh, basically after he met her, he st- I think he started to recognize that uh, the role more of what, I guess you could say, emotions play in the intersubjective interaction. Um and um, and um, she also was influenced by his work, seeing like therapy more as like a triangular interaction. But um, so I'm I'm basically saying that kind of intimacy is something that's left out of a Davidsonian account. That's partly because it it again, if you set up the point of departure at this level of inner subjectivity. You still have to account for subjectivity and objectivity. And and Davidson did. He just thought that subjectivity and objectivity were basically derivative and like dependent on intersubjectivity. But he still thought that you had to make sense of those things. That's why he has this book, uh, one of his famous collection of volumes called Subjectivity, Inner Subjectivity, Objectivity. Those are what he calls the three, I guess, domains of knowledge or something about that, like that. But anyway, so subjectivity is an extremely interesting thing to look at in relation to intersubjectivity. And that's really what that chapter is trying to do. Um, and in the process, I talk about... Uh, Marshall Rosenberg's ideas about nonviolent communication, uh, also going in ways that directions that Davidson didn't go, like what about the ethics of communication and triangulation? So maybe like uh, trying to kind of think a little, push Davidson a little, uh, and but still within that framework is basically what what that chapter is trying to do. Yeah, um, thank you very much for that one. Is there anything that you want to uh, say uh, about the book, which uh, I mean, we have missed out in the conversation or I haven't asked? Well, there's so many like moving pieces and parts to the book. It's kind of hard to say. I think we we did a really, uh, I think we covered a lot of um, the the most important parts about it. Um, I mean, one thing is I'm trying to make the case that basically we need to be more serious about incorporating evolutionary and cognitive approaches into the humanities um, in ways that uh, take seriously this the irreducibility of a lot of the stuff we study as humanists but I think that doesn't mean we just have, can just turn a blind eye to it. And I also think that people in the harder sciences and the cognitive scientists need to, you, you know, need to be more appreciative of the humanities and the kinds of stuff we do in the humanities, uh, because um, there's such a rich, vast richness outside of. Uh, this small kind of uh, is basically, you know, a Western European box that a lot of cognitive science and the hard sciences look at things. I don't know if things would be different if we if we took other perspectives into consideration more, but I think it's worth thinking about and worth pursuing. So that's kind of the the undertext of the book is trying to get us out of this like cultural war ideas between the sciences and this more of like a, I don't know if it's Humboldt or it's like some kind of vision that sees more conversation taking place across. Yeah. 
And that is where your idea of why metaphysics matters comes in, where both of the discipline can come to a terms of where we are coming from. And that is where we can have a conversation together. Thank you for such a wonderful conversation, Dr. Levy. Is there any project that you are currently working on? And also, if people want to get in touch with you regarding your work, how do people get in touch with you? Yeah. You could just Google my name and you'll find me or on Twitter, Gabriel Levy one at Gabriel Levy one. So I, I've been on paternity leave uh, last year. So uh, just after the book was published. So I'm kind of just trying to gear up for the, whatever the next project is going to be. Uh, I think I want to keep going a bit in this direction about fiction and storytelling. And I also want to pick up some more pieces from the book. Like I had meant to do more on the Sefer Yitzirah, like a much deeper kind of dive into that text, it's, but it's insanely hard. So I didn't, I don't think I managed fully that that would be something. I also wanted to have a chapter on politics and power uh, because I think there are implications about politics in this approach, uh, especially about metaphysics and uh, theories about um, human nature, if you want to call it that, uh, have implications about politics. And then uh, I want to continue on this theme about agency, which I guess we didn't get to that much. But um, uh, yeah, we, we have a network here at, at NTNU that's going to researching that uh, action and agency and interaction is the idea there but yeah I'm, I'm just basically taking a breath right now after uh, my paternity leave and then then we're seeing what what's gonna come from here yes thank you very much Dr. Gabriel Levy and I'm sure um, to the listeners I'm sure you'll all chip in in this very conversation that is flowing on through this very book and once again i thank dr levy for being here and uh, thank you very much and take care yeah thanks for having me see you take care